welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 7 and Episode 8. We're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep as it appears in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. This parable also appears in Luke's Gospel in Luke 15, and we'll discuss that just a little bit later on. So we're in the middle of Matthew 18 in our studies. If you've heard the earlier episodes just before this one, you'll see that we're working systematically through Matthew chapter 18, which is one of the major discourses of Jesus bringing teaching as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Let's set the wider context first of all, just reminding ourselves that series seven is a point at which the story turns and changes and moves in a different direction in the gospel accounts. From the beginning up until series six, we have been focused for the most part on Jesus in Galilee. This has been where his ministry has been focused and he spent most of his time He's travelled around extensively, he's raised up disciples, he's appointed 12 apostles, he's taught the Sermon on the Mount, he's performed some very remarkable miracles, he's gained a huge reputation, thousands of people have come to Galilee to meet him, to hear him or to be healed by him. This is broadly speaking what's happened in the earlier part of the Gospel narrative and we've seen that story unfold as one series has led on to another. It reached a high point at the end of series six, and that was symbolized really by the feeding of the 5,000, a gigantic, wonderful, miraculous event with a huge crowd, the largest number of people ever recorded in Jesus's audience as he's speaking and healing. And some of the crowd got so excited that they really wanted to make him a political leader at that point and really to take over the country. That moment triggered Jesus to reconsider his situation and very shortly after that he moved out of Galilee for a bit in order to avoid public pressure and ended up in the town of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples all on his own with them teaching them about his identity, the future of the church and then from then onwards, after the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James and John, he indicates that he's now going to focus his ministry on moving to Jerusalem. He tells them that in the future he'll be suffering, dying and rising again from the dead. And there's quite a lot of material about that in the accounts that we've been looking at, particularly as we focused on Matthew's Gospel. And that has led us to this substantial piece of teaching in Matthew 18 which is about the community of the kingdom. Jesus is teaching about community relationships in the discipleship community which will become the church and we're halfway through that teaching as we come into this episode. So it's worth just looking back for a moment before we look at this particular parable and its implications for our theme. One thing just to say by way of a reminder is that the structure of Matthew's Gospel gives prominence to Jesus's teaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew describes in detail the times when Jesus expands his teaching and gives substantial 
information and teaching to his disciples. There are five occasions when this is done very clearly, and there's a lot of other teaching material in Matthew's Gospel as well. Those five occasions start with the Sermon on the Mount, the lifestyle of the kingdom, Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. Then it moves in Matthew 10 to the mission of the kingdom, teaching about evangelism and mission. Then in Matthew 13, the theme becomes the growth of the kingdom through the years, from Jesus's time through to his second coming. And he teaches here in parables. There are seven parables grouped together in Matthew 13. And the fourth main teaching section or discourse is the one we're looking at now in Matthew 18, which covers the whole of this chapter and which focuses on the community of the kingdom. There's one more to come. Matthew 24 and 25 tell us about the future of the kingdom and especially focus on the second coming of Christ. For now, our focus is on community relationships. And Jesus has a lot to say about those community relationships. He said a lot already, and we need to keep all those things in mind as we come to this passage. In the first section that we looked at, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5, Jesus defined what true greatness in the kingdom of God was. He defined it in an unusual way, quite a provocative way, by bringing a young child, a primary school age child, probably aged between six and eight, something like that, and sat the child with the disciples and commented on the attitudes and life of a child like that and commended to his disciples that they needed to follow the pattern of children in their trust, their receptivity and their humility. Trust in God, receptivity to his will and humility towards him. That was the first section, Matthew 18, 1 to 5. In Matthew 18, 6 to 9, we have a section about protecting believers from danger, the danger of being led astray, either through nominal Christianity in the midst of the church or through outsiders seeking to influence Christians and discourage them in their faith or prevent them practicing their faith. The third section here is about protecting believers from wandering. So we've spoken of the particular danger of people directly leading Christians astray, but now we have the more general problem about believers wandering. And this is going to be the theme of Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14. Now Jesus chooses to illustrate this point by the use of a parable. In the previous episode, he's illustrated what he's saying by the use of hyperbole, an exaggerated example, actually about cutting off hands and feet, if you remember that from the last episode, if you listened in on that one. That's a literary device which we call hyperbole, making a point by saying something very exaggerated that draws your attention to the issue. And that's what Jesus did in the previous passage. Now he uses a familiar form of teaching, parable, the parable of the lost sheep, one of the best known New Testament parables. But before we look at it, let's just remind ourselves, parables are stories that essentially have one 
major point. They're not generally speaking designed to be used as allegories where every single detail in the story has an exact correlation to some other reality. It's the main point that counts and some of the details will have significant meaning and usually we can interpret that easily from the context without having an imaginary allegorical structure imposed upon it. Now parables are stories that strike you, they make you think and the effect of parables as described when Jesus first introduced them in Matthew 13 and you can look back in that episode if you're interested to see that, the effect of a parable is to divide people's responses, those who really get it and those who don't, those who understand and those who are kind of confused about how the parable might apply to them. But Jesus often used parables in different contexts. Now, before I read this parable, let me just comment on an interesting aspect of this particular situation. This parable, the parable of the lost sheep, also appears in Luke chapter 15. And I'll comment on the different contexts in a moment. But it makes us realise or reminds us of something very important about the teaching of Jesus, and that is that he often taught in a similar way in different contexts. Now, this is hardly surprising. If he had a ministry that lasted, shall we say, approximately three years, if he was speaking publicly almost every single day, he is likely to use similar teaching, similar analogies, similar metaphors, similar stories, similar parables in his teaching. And sometimes we get this recorded in the Gospels. But the two contexts are very, very different. So I'm going to treat these as two different situations and we'll come to the parable in Luke 15 in a different context. Let's read Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now the context here concerns little ones. This expression has been used throughout Matthew 18 and the important question for us is to identify who these little ones are. So we need to go back over the passages and see what their identity is. Some people have identified little ones here to refer to children. And there's a possibility there drawn from the fact that in Matthew 18 verse 2, Jesus called a little child and placed the child amongst the disciples. And a child can legitimately be called a little one. But it is also clear 
in Matthew 18 verse 6 that Jesus defines the little ones in a slightly different way. He moves from the literal child and uses it as a metaphor for the ordinary humble believer. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, he says in verse 6 of Matthew 18. Notice there, the little one is defined as those who believe in me. In other words, Jesus is talking there about believers, not about children. Humble believers, not children, are in view. So that helps us to interpret the passage, and there's some implications of that that we'll come back to. So this tells us that the context for this parable is about the church and the existing group of believers. Jesus is concerned for the protection of those who've already decided to believe. Now, this is a different context than the use of this parable in Luke 15, in the first part of that chapter, which focuses on unbelievers and their need to be saved, and it focuses on the ministry of God and of Christ, particularly, to go and seek and find those people. Now, here the focus is much more on the community of the church, and the implication here is the responsibility of those who have the opportunity to go and find the sheep that have wandered. We'll come back to that point in a moment. Verse 10. Do not despise one of these little ones. Do not despise, in other words, the people in church communities who seem insignificant. Don't consider them secondary. Don't despise them. Now, the church community, like any community, will always have leaders, will always have richer people, will always have more capable people, will always have more extrovert people who are more prominent. It'll always have younger people with more energy than older people. And so there's a risk in the church community that some of its members become ignored or despised because they are apparently insignificant. And the point here is that they need to be given as much respect as other more prominent or capable or able or richer people. Now, that's a very important principle for church life. Have a think about the church community you belong to if you belong to a church community. Have a think of the less prominent people. How well are they respected? How well are they integrated? How well are they communicated to? How well are they supported? What happens if they cease to attend the church community? These are important questions. I think of my own church community where the membership goes from some people in their 90s to infant children who've only been born in the past few weeks. And we have a spread of people across all those generations. 
there are prominent people, there are able people, there are richer people, there are people involved in leadership, but there are a lot of people involved in that community who are not prominent, don't say much, don't apparently exercise much influence. They are just as important as the others. Do not despise one of these little ones. In other words, those who profess Christ, you know they're a believer, but they don't have any obvious human importance. Then comes this reference in verse 10 to the angels of the little ones. I've many times heard this verse referred to by those who assume that the little ones are children and the angels are guardian angels assigned individually to each child. I don't believe this is a good interpretation of this verse because the little ones are not specifically children as explained a few moments ago. So we just have to be careful about oversimplistic interpretations of verses like this. Nor does this verse necessarily say that every single believer has their own guardian angel linked or assigned to them. Now, the New Testament and the Gospels, and Matthew's Gospel in particular, have a very positive view of angels, which I'm going to comment on later on. But I think it is fairer to say that this is a description of the general role of angels to serve and to help believers. And in particular, they will help those in need, such as the little ones described here. Now, in Hebrews and chapter 1, as mentioned in other places, but worth repeating, there's a very interesting descriptive sentence about angels. Hebrews 1 verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So the general function of angels towards the church is clearly defined in the book of Hebrews. They are to help us who are going to inherit salvation. We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But the majority of this parable is, of course, given over to the story of the hundred sheep and the shepherd and the hillside and the fact that out of his flock of a hundred, one has gone missing and he then faces a decision. What is he going to do? Is he going to say, well, we'll forget about the one. It doesn't matter very much. I've got 99. Let's just leave the one. I'll never find it anyway. Out here on the hillside, we're just allowed for the fact that we've lost one sheep. These things happen. No, the shepherd in this story does exactly the opposite of that. He is highly motivated to maintain all his flock. And so the narrative goes here that he leaves the 99 on the hillside and then he goes in search of the one. And 
he seeks to bring back that one sheep to restore the sheep to the full flock. Now, when I first heard that story, I puzzled over it as a child, wondering why the 99 sheep didn't get lost as well. What's the point of saving one sheep and then all the other 99 get scattered when you are away? But knowing a little bit more about how sheep were looked after and what the function of the shepherd was in the Middle East in this particular era helps us realise what this story is saying. Now, the first thing to remember, and it's been mentioned before when we've discussed this topic in earlier episodes, but the first thing to remember is that the Middle East and Israel at this time was not covered in fences and boundaries and barbed wire to divide different farms and different hillsides from each other, as is the case in more developed countries in the world today. No, in general, the countryside was open and flocks of sheep and goats would wander widely across considerable distances of open land and hillside. Shepherds worked in teams, not on their own, generally speaking, and they were on duty as a team for 24 hours a day. They had to keep watch of their sheep and they had to know their sheep and very often they would mark their sheep in order to know them and in order to protect the sheep in the night time generally speaking sheep were gathered into a sheep fold as Jesus refers to in John chapter 10 when he describes himself as the good shepherd. They come into the sheep fold, they get counted in, then they get counted out and this is a way of knowing how many sheep you've got which you can't really do if they're all wandering over the hillside and it's also a way of protecting them at nights when they'd be more vulnerable to attacks by wild animals. Knowing these things helps us to understand the sort of decision that the shepherd is described as making. When he leaves the 99 sheep, he's not leaving them on the open countryside. He's leaving them probably with other shepherds and he's probably leaving them in a sheep fold. But God is likened to the shepherd who cares for his sheep and is interested in the one who goes astray. Now, when I talk to modern shepherds, I'm aware that they know an awful lot about their sheep very often. And they can recognise their sheep, they can identify them, they can tell when sheep are missing. They have a very perceptive way of knowing what's going on with their animals, as livestock farmers characteristically do in a way that other people don't. And so for such people especially if they're counting their sheep in and out day and night from the sheepfold, they'll quickly know when a sheep is missing, just as they know when animals are injured. So this is an important and powerful story. What does it teach us? What kind of broader reflections can we make? What can we learn from this passage, particularly in this context? First of all, Let's comment a little bit further on angels. This reference 
to angels is not an isolated reference in Matthew's Gospel. Nor is it an isolated reference in the New Testament. Angels are mentioned frequently, but let's just think about Matthew's Gospel for a moment and take one or two examples. Matthew clearly firmly believed in the influence and involvement in angels to help and guide and protect God's people. If you go back to the beginning, you'll notice how Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, was guided by the angel, first of all, in his decision to marry Mary when she became pregnant miraculously. Secondly, in his decision to flee from Bethlehem when threatened by Herod the Great. Thirdly, in his decision to come back from Egypt after fleeing from Bethlehem and to go back to Nazareth. And so we see an angel described as being involved in the process of helping Joseph look after his family and his newborn son, Jesus. Then when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, and after those temptations are complete, we read in Matthew 4 that angels came and ministered to Jesus. Then when Jesus is in the tomb, we find in Matthew 28 that an angel comes and rolls the stone away. We find at the second coming, Matthew 24 verse 31 describes angels gathering together believers from the four corners of the earth. Now these are just a few examples. But you can see that Matthew is very happy and willing to describe the role of angels as real, tangible, powerful, but largely invisible to us. A spiritual reality, spiritual beings operating on behalf of God's purposes and his people, but rarely perceived directly or seen. Let's talk about the vulnerability of some believers, the little ones that Jesus is talking about here. Why do they wander? Now, this is not like the last passage where people are pressurizing them to give up their faith or neglect their spiritual duties or go away from the church. This is just a natural wandering. Why do some believers wander? Maybe they're new in faith and not very experienced. Maybe they lack secure relationships in church. Maybe their family or their society pull them away from church allegiance. Maybe they don't have much Bible knowledge and experience and discipleship. Maybe they're emotionally vulnerable and form unhealthy relationships with other people. These are only some of the causes of believers described here as little ones to wander. But each one is valuable. And so what this passage encourages us in is that the church should be actively seeking out those who have wandered from their community. This is a particular responsibility of leaders, but it's also a responsibility of church members. We, as churches, should be communities that are guided by spiritual shepherds. Now, leaders of churches are actually described sometimes as shepherds. For example, in 1 Peter 5 verse 2, speaking to elders and pastors of churches, 
Peter says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Notice that expression, watching over them. And then in verse 4 of the same passage, 1 Peter 5 verse 4, Jesus is described as the chief shepherd. What a wonderful description. In John 10 verses 11 to 14, he describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so churches are shepherding communities. There's a particular responsibility on the leaders to look out for weaker members and to help them when they can. There's also responsibility of other members to help one another when others begin to drift or to struggle for one reason or another. So in this passage, in conclusion, we have more important teaching about what makes up a healthy Christian community. We found out in the first part of Matthew 18, the first five verses, the attitudes that are important, trusting God in humility and being responsive and receptive to him. We found out in the second passage, Matthew 18, verses 6 to 9, some of the reasons that cause people to stumble and some of the warnings against those either inside the church or outside the church who literally influence people negatively. But here we have something more general about the culture of the church, a community where everyone belongs, everyone has a place, however insignificant they may be, and their absence really matters. Now, you might be one of those people who was in a church and you're no longer in a church. Can I encourage you? Now is the time to return to a living church community. Can I encourage you if you think of people who you know who've left church communities? Now is the time to consider how might I go and seek them out and encourage them. If you're a church leader, may this passage encourage you in your pastoral responsibilities. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.